0: Travel the highways to Loretto, Kentucky, and you'll find the Makers Mark Distillery. A National Historic Landmark, the distillery welcomes visitors from all over the world to experience bourbon the way the Samuels family intended. The bourbon was created by Bill Samuels Sr., but the distillery in the bottle, with each bottle hand-dipped in that iconic red wax, was the brainchild of his wife, Margie Samuels. Today, Margie and Bill's grandson, Rob, runs a distillery and invites everyone to stop by and experience a home place of Maker's Mark just the way his grandparents had, with friends and great bourbon. For their dedication to the craft of quality bourbon making and their support of the Southern Foodways Alliance, we thank them. Maker's Mark crafts bourbon carefully. Please enjoy it that way.
1: In South Louisiana, black men have played a key role in the region's oyster industry for centuries. Yet
2: today, it's difficult to find any black men in oystering.
1: In this episode of Gravy, Kayla Stewart speaks to one of South Louisiana's last black oystermen.
2: Their discussion dredges up the realities of modern aquaculture, how we got here, and what the present means for the future of South Louisiana's oystering culture.
1: I'm Sarah Camp Milam I'm Melissa Hall You're listening to Gravy 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 A production of the Southern Foodways Alliance Gravy tells the stories of the changing American South Kayla Stewart has the story
3: The Louisiana coast is a place of magic. The music, the culture, and the food that makes the region so ripe for tourism largely exist because of the culinary bounties found along the state's shores. Sitting along the Gulf of Mexico, in Louisiana's coastal waters, are shrimp, crabs, crawfish, catfish, alligator, and so much more. Perhaps one of the most important sea treasures found there are oysters, the bread and butter for thousands of oystermen employed in the state of Louisiana. In restaurants across New Orleans and South Louisiana, restaurant menus are brimming with fried oyster po'boys, oysters Rockefeller, char-grilled oysters, and oysters on the half shell by the dozen. By the way, in this episode, when we're talking about fishermen, we're including oystermen, crabbers, and any group that are harvesting fish and seafood from the Gulf. I spoke to Byron Enkelod, an oysterman who spent most of his professional life on the water.
4: I'm from Point Lahash, Louisiana. I'm 68 years old.
3: I met Byron at his daughter's home in Belchase in Plaquemines Parish, about 30 miles north of his hometown, Point Lahash, which is about an hour from New Orleans. Byron is a respected figure in this community. He's a father, a local constable, and one of Louisiana's longtime oystermen. Byron descends from a long line of black men who oystered for a living, and remembers going out on the water with his relatives early on.
4: They've been taking us on boats since we were children. And my father, he left out the the, oyster business at an early age because he started driving trucks, you know. And my grandfather who built boats, built a boat, his own boat. Uh, uh, You know, I had all these uncles that was like another father to us, you know. And uh, that's all they ever done was fish oysters.
3: Byron fondly recalls life out on the water, searching for the prized oysters.
4: Dad and uncles would be out there opening oysters. Well, they'd open one for the pot, and then we'd suck up one, you know? So yes, it was part of our diet, you know? Fish, oysters, shrimps, that's what we grew up on.
3: And the taste? Well, for Byron, it's practically too good to describe.
4: It's a smooth taste to me. I mean, it's 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 uh it's a sweet taste to me. I mean, you know, it's not bitter or anything. And I don't know why no one would have a problem eating it because it's really a a, a really smooth taste. I love it. You know, I love them. And
3: oysters from this area specifically hold a special place for him.
4: That oyster, that basically was to me the best oyster in the world, <laughs> you know, and uh, and it was, you know, it was an abundant supply, you know. So,
3: Byron's life revolved around oystering. For generations, hunting and fishing put food on the table in this part of Louisiana. During his preteen and teen years, Byron began really developing his technical oystering skills.
4: I think I was about thirteen when I first started going out on my own and coon what we call cooning oysters, which is a nickname because of the raccoon, you know. Named after the raccoon and we I'd go out there and, and my uncle Albert, who who had a little boat and 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 maybe I might have been, yeah, I think I was younger than that, might have been nine, ten, eleven years old when we we used to get overboard and he we'd throw the oysters in the boat, you know. And grandmother would tell us, go back there and give me some oysters and some crabs. And we'd give us a couple of chicken bones or chicken necks and we'd go catch crabs. You know, that's just, that was the life.
3: Byron's route towards becoming a professional oysterman wasn't linear. He served in the United States military and considers himself a proud Vietnam veteran. When he returned home, he worked on a naval base and at an oil refinery to support his wife and children. But Byron didn't love that work the way he loved being out on the water.
4: That was, wasn't where my heart was. My heart was on the water, you know, and I went back to it.
3: Around 1975, when Byron was in his early 20s, he decided to buy a boat to make a living harvesting oysters for local vendors and oyster shops. He called his business Oncalade Fisheries.
4: I was able to, to establish a business and and, and over time and, and that's what I did and I yeah I supported my family and, and I like to think I did a pretty good job.
3: He did indeed. Byron raised three children and he taught his nephews how to harvest oysters. But today, Byron says that his generation is likely the last generation of black oystermen to maintain a dominant presence in Louisiana's oystering industry.
4: I got cousins right now that still trawl and, and have boats and stuff. Not too many of them. Some of them are still fishing oysters, you know, uh, uh, and, and because there's not much left. Black
3: men have played a key role in Louisiana's oyster industry since enslavement. During this time, they'd oyster for their slave owners, and those white slave owners of course kept the profits from their hard work. After enslavement, black men in Louisiana and across the South continued to play a key role in the industry. But some of their white counterparts, feeling threatened by the new competition, took steps to limit their success. They implemented laws supposedly set to protect the environment, even though black fishermen and hunters had a history of being more environmentally conscious than their white counterparts, who relied on dredging techniques that damaged oyster reefs, They created a more industrialized industry that requires new, expensive equipment. Over time, it became increasingly difficult for black men to make a living in the industry. But many, like generations of men in Byron's family, still found ways to survive and thrive. For a while, Byron was one of those men— he ran Ancalade Fisheries while training his younger relatives in the tricks of the trade, had become a mentor to other Black men in the community, and had become so well-regarded in the industry that he eventually became president of the Louisiana Oystermen Association. Then came the BP oil spill. In April 2010, an explosion occurred on the Deepwater Horizon, an oil rig owned by BP. The ensuing spill lasted for nearly three months, leaking over 200 million gallons of crude oil into the Gulf of Mexico. It is still one of the largest environmental disasters in the world and absolutely devastated the entire fishing industry. For already marginalized black oystermen like Byron, the disaster hit especially hard, and many of his former colleagues ultimately left the region and the industry. Byron fought valiantly for Louisiana's oystermen, even testifying about his experience to the House of Congress on behalf of the Louisiana Oystermen Association. Since then, Byron has had to fight many challenges, like an increasing number of devastating storms. At 68 and facing ongoing health challenges, Byron no longer goes out on the water.
4: Bad policies and, and again, greed, you know, uh, uh, have literally destroyed it. And they like to say it's because of overfishing, but it's not. That's one of the furthest things from the truth. You know, when an oyster and, and an animal cannot reproduce, then eventually you're going to have a problem.
3: In recent years, coastal restoration projects have introduced more freshwater, disrupting the habitat of various sea creatures, like oysters.
4: We saw it from all our lives, you know. And, and fresh water has a, plays an important part, but it's fresh, wood, fresh water comes with, comes pollution. You know, I mean, when we look at the nutrients and the, the runoff from the fertilized farms up north and things, that's devastating for oysters. These man-made channels and fresh water and runoff from the Mississippi River You know, you don't have the same water or the same sediments no more. You know, and the thing is, you know, you're killing off a lot of the animals in order to say, and and no one is more for coastal restoration than a fisherman.
3: He made it clear that a number of issues, including racism, rising costs, and environmental challenges, have plagued the industry within the last decade making it nearly impossible for black men to continue working in the industry.
4: There's no one thing you could put your finger on and say this is what caused it. Now there are some that may have had more more impact on it than others. Of course, Harveston too. The way we harvest oysters was one of the things, but that was policy. That was the state policy. Oysters should have never been put in a situation where they had to be industrialized. And when I say industrialized, I'm not talking about the the small businesses. You know, uh, uh, when you start talking about, you know, being able to harvest and, and transport tons and tons of oysters, they don't reproduce that quick. You know, and that played a part too. Now,
3: we've been focused on the business of wild harvested oysters, which is Byron's expertise. But on the Gulf Coast, as well as on the East Coast, oysters are increasingly farmed rather than caught wild. So now we're turning to an East Coast-based aquaculture expert to learn more about the current state of the industry.
5: African-Americans in general, um, our relationship with the water has never been our own.
3: That's Amani Black. A native of Maryland's eastern shore on the Chesapeake Bay, she first worked in aquaculture in college. Today, she's the founder and CEO of a nonprofit called Minorities in Aquaculture, and a master's student at the University of Maryland's Center for Environmental Science. And while most of Imani's work focuses on the Chesapeake Bay, she says that the challenges Black watermen face there mirror challenges in other parts of the U.S., including Louisiana.
5: The Chesapeake Bay is just a copy and paste of so many coastal communities um, and just so many communities uh, that were really prominent, had really prominent African-Americans in their commercial fishing industries. Imani's
3: currently working on her graduate thesis, which examines the historical involvement and participation of African-Americans in commercial fisheries. To try and pinpoint why we see such a lack of diversity in the industry these days, she's exploring Black Americans' earliest relationship to America's southeastern coast. When many enslaved people arrived to the U.S., they were pushed to live by the waterside, which Imani says was considered a less-than-glamorous living environment at that particular time. This is when Black Americans really began to develop a personal and professional relationship with the coast.
5: So when you're living next to the water and you're learning about your environment um, by exploring it, by getting resources from it, all of those different things, then you start to see it was like a way for them to be involved without their master. Um and it was a way for them to feed their families, very, you know, very low cost um, and very economically. So it was a lot of things that kind of started us in the fishing industry. The way that we continued is because, again, it was a very it it was a very lucrative um, way of working.
3: But for generations, explains Imani, Black oystermen had to contend with racism from white competitors. For example, they had limited access to credit thanks to racist bank policies.
5: You know, there was a time, uh, you know, definitely in the Jim Crow era when things were politically charged. You know that's kind of the same testament too of like, uh, you know that general racism that they had to go through of you know their um, oysters not being sold at the same price as their white counterparts, um, white uh, counter or white colleagues or white owners of you know packing houses not taking their products you know because they say that they're full up that day. As soon as white counterparts come up to the dock, you know they take their um, fish or crabs or oysters off the boat.
3: Black Americans were also left out as the industry started to make technological changes, particularly to fishing boats
5: when boats really became kind of more than what they were back then, um, you know, black people were making boats and they were making sails. Um, you know, on the Chesapeake Bay, like that's, was one of their prominent jobs. And so as like the fisheries started to expand and so remember that being an oysterman or being a waterman was not considered a glamorous job. It wasn't considered as a wholesome job. Um, And so, you know, as the industry started moving more and technology really, you know, started to evolve, um, that's when that separation sort of happened because banks at that time were not giving Black people loans.
3: On top of racism and rising cost, environmental issues only added to the pile of challenges facing Black oystermen and that continue to impact them today.
5: Some people with climate change and sea level rising like couldn't live in their coastal communities anymore, so they had to more, move more inland. Um, racism, definitely a thing. It's still being experienced today by the Black captains, the very few that exist. The change happened when we couldn't get the resources that we needed to be competitive and continue.
3: And Imani says the latter half of the 20th century is when the number of Black watermen really starts to dwindle.
5: That's really when we started to see a lot of people, um, a lot of black men that were out on the water, like either having to make the decision of leaving the industry or staying and doing other roles. They were kind of sick and tired of dealing with, you know, like I was saying before, their um, their catch not being sold the same or, you know, kind of going through that those racial microaggressions, if you would say. Once, you know, you don't have a lucrative and viable kind of um, position in a industry, then you go into other roles in that industry that, you know, are more viable or more sustainable.
1: When we come back, we'll learn more about how Byron Onkelod is processing this change and if there's any hope for a new generation of black oystermen.
2: The holidays are nearly here, which means it's time for cooking, eating, memory-making, and, of course, gifting. Lodge Cast Iron Cookware makes the perfect gift for anyone on your list. Classic skillets and pans that work hard year-round, specialty bakeware that's big on holiday charm, and enameled cast iron that helps make the season bright. They've got your gift list wrapped right up. Lodge Cast Iron helps you bring memories to your holiday celebrations and is made to last for generations. Go to lodgecastiron.com to shop their full collection. Lodge wishes you happy holidays. And the Southern Foodways Alliance, for their long-time support of this podcast, thanks Lodge. For
3: Byron and other families like his... Being unable to oyster is more than just losing a job. It's losing a legacy. It's losing the opportunity to pass down knowledge to the next generation.
4: We're we talking about values and things that that style of life teaches you. And it teaches you how to support yourself and your family. That's one of the main things.
3: And according to Imani, that loss is devastating to the entire industry
5: what we lose by not having a, you know, a huge influx of the next generation coming in is history within itself. I mean, that is actively fading history right in front of us. That's actively fading traditional ecological knowledge uh, from someone who has spent their life out on a certain waterway that knows it probably like the back of their hand that can visualize what's going on with it and, and has made decisions throughout decades that have been out on that water based on what they've seen, whether they've had the education, quote unquote, to do it or not.
3: The number of commercial Black oystermen and fishermen has dwindled so much, it's impossible to find definitive research on how many there are, both in Louisiana and across the U.S. I stopped by Coastal Communities Consulting, just outside of New Orleans, to try and find any information I could about this population.
0: Brown shrimp, white shrimp, oysters, crawfish, sheep's head, tuna, shark, flounder, redfish, snapper, Pompano. Let's see. At least those are all the things that I eat) <laughs>
3: That's Katrina Williams, a special programs coordinator at Coastal Communities Consulting, a nonprofit designed to assist Louisiana's fishermen, which encompasses oystermen, shrimpers, crabbers, and other similar professions on the water. Katrina, an obvious seafood lover, works with fishermen across a range of backgrounds, assisting them with things like social services, technical assistance, and disaster aid.
0: Within the seven parishes that we work in and even beyond, the, the people that we work with have come from all the way as far as Vietnam, Cambodia, uh, to Honduras, Croatia, generational African-American fishermen, uh, native-born American uh, fishermen, uh, Creoles, Cajuns, a lot of different people from different walks of life. And
3: despite the large number of Black Americans in the region, Katrina has had difficulty connecting with Black people
0: in the industry. The few African American clients that we do have uh, tend to be older. Um, I would say on average 58. The oldest uh, client that I personally have assisted is 80 years old. Um, and uh, primarily any African American fisherman that I have come across, whether it be in work or just outside of work, have uh, dominated the oyster harvesting industry.
3: The few remaining local black oystermen that Byron knows, a number that you can literally count on one hand, are all above the age of 60. And this mirrors trends
5: around the country. In the Chesapeake Bay, there's only, you know, 10 that are African American men that are working out on the water and 9 of them are all over the age of 60 just like the uh, oystermen in, in Louisiana. And as
3: the cost of staying competitive skyrockets, profits are decreasing across the industry, discouraging a new generation of commercial
0: fishermen. It's just a really, really expensive, labor-intensive business to to be in. Lower-income communities, when people have kids, they encourage them to Go to school,
3: move away. Byron largely agrees.
4: I mean, to go out there and harvest oysters now in the places you have to go, you know, you, you got to start off, you're talking about uh, uh, probably the cheapest you're going to get by with to really do it at the level I was doing it. You, you need a, a half a million, million dollars just to invest in a business. Yeah. And before, all I needed was a little $5,000 boat motor. I can go out there and make, make all the money and support my family. You know? And you can't do it no more.
3: As fewer black oystermen work Louisiana's waters, a vibrant culture is fading. Esteemed New Orleans chef Leah Chase once said that her restaurant, Dookie Chase, relied on Black oystermen for some of the restaurant's main dishes. Other chefs have followed her lead of using local purveyors, including award-winning Melissa Martin of New Orleans Mosquito Supper Club. Katrina hopes this focus on locally sourced fish and oysters continues, but also hopes chefs and cooks seek out Black folks who may be doing this work, no matter how few there may be.
0: For me, being here, it's 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 vibrant. Um, but as far as perhaps with there being not as many Black fishermen contributing to the the food culture, the seafood culture in this city, um, I think hopefully in years to come that could change as more young entrepreneurs open up restaurants in the city and the whole farm-to-table movement, and they seek out certain groups or, or, you know, seek out the Black fishermen who they would want to, to do business with and help them grow as well.
3: This hope, however, relies on the existence of Black fishermen. When I went into Louisiana searching for Black oystermen, I knew I wouldn't find many given all of the challenges the community has faced over the past few decades. But admittedly, I was not prepared for how bleak the state of the industry is. I couldn't venture out on the water with a few of Byron's younger family members, because during the fall and early winter, there simply weren't enough oysters to harvest. Byron's experience is painful, and sadly, it's not an anomaly. And while my conversation with Amani Black, who brings women and people of color into the promising aquaculture industry, gave me some hope, I'm still concerned about the state of the industry. Without a younger generation of Black men working in the oyster industry, Byron and men his age may very well be the last group of Black oystermen on Louisiana's coast. That's a devastating prospect for a state whose reputation is so closely tied to its foodways, especially those of its Black chefs, cooks, farmers, and fishermen.
4: Would I encourage my grandsons to uh, say, I want you to be an oyster fisherman? I would I would like to say yes.
3: But he can't.
5: No. No.
1: Kayla Stewart reported and produced this episode. She is at work on a book about Black Texas foodways with Chef Christopher Williams of Lucille's in Houston.
2: We thank Wendell Patrick for Gravy's theme music and Jazar for our donor music.
1: Special thanks for this episode go to fact checker Katie King and editor Olivia Torenzio.
2: Managing editor for Gravy and all other SFA media is my co-host Sarah Camp Milam. Mary Beth Lassiter is our publisher.
1: Visit us at southernfoodways.org to peruse our oral history collection, which includes decades-long work telling the stories of oystering on Florida's forgotten coast.
2: And while you're there, please consider becoming a member or making a donation. Your dollars fund our work and help us make more great.